You're listening to BiblioAsia Plus, a podcast produced by the National Library of Singapore. At BiblioAsia, we tell stories about Singapore's past, some unfamiliar, others forgotten, all fascinating. Welcome to another episode of BiblioAsia Plus. I'm Jimmy Yap, the Editor-in-Chief of BiblioAsia, a publication of the National Library. Today, we're going to talk about the famous shrines on Kusu Island. Known in Malay as Karamat, the shrines on Kusu Island made the news in April 2022 when a huge fire broke out and destroyed the structures around the shrines. Before the fire, author and researcher William L. Gibson had been doing some digging, not literally, on the people purportedly buried in the Karamat. And along the way, he made some interesting discoveries. For example, while the story nowadays is that a certain Haji Syed Abdul Rahman is buried at Karamat Kusu, together with his wife and daughter, William found out that this story is of a relatively recent vintage. By combing through over a century's worth of newspaper records, William has been able to trace the evolution of the story of the mysterious occupants of the shrines on Kusu. William has written about Kramat Kusu in BiblioAsia recently, and he's here today to tell us more about what he's found. I have to clarify that the William Gibson who's with us today is not the same writer who pioneered the cyberpunk genre. Instead, this is William L. Lloyd Gibson, a less famous but much more important author who wrote Alfred Raquez and the French Experience of the Far East, 1898-1906. William was awarded the Lee Kong Chien Research Fellowship by the National Library Board in 2022, and during this fellowship, he studied various kramas in Singapore. So, welcome to BiblioAsia Plus, William. Thank you, Jimmy. Thank you for having me here. Okay, so let's jump right in here. So tell us, who exactly is buried on Kramat Kusu? Well, it's, it's an interesting question because likely the answer is no one. When you go to the, to the island, it's announced as Datu Kong. And there's a, a plaque on the island uh, from 1917, uh, which mentions a female Datuk, Datuk Nenek. And these are figures from uh, in, within a Chinese tradition where they're, na- they're nature spirits, earth spirits, which are given or possess, I should say, a Malay identity. And that seems to be the origin of this shrine. Uh, and it's still treated that way. Like I said, when you go to the site, you still see the words Datu Kong and Datu Nenek are, are announced very prominently. And it would appear that the graves are actually shrine graves and not actual graves. Ah, okay, that's, that's a relief. Um, so <laughs> when did these <laughs> names... Well, you know, we, 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 I, I don't really want to go to a cemetery all that often. Um, when did these names, you know, Haji Syed Abdul Rahman, his wife Nenek Ghalib, and the daughter Sharifah Fatima, these names, when did they first appear in the historical record? I first came across them in an article from 1948. And that's the first time those names appear. Uh, so basically after the Second World War. Prior to that, the names given are, are, are like things like Datuk Karamat. So when exactly these names came about, I, it's, it's hard to say, but they first show up, in at least in the archival record, uh, after the Second World War. So before that, 
we, they were just nameless. Before that, a lot of the descriptions uh, in English just refer to Malay graves or the, or the Malay holy man on, on the island. Uh, Chinese tradition refers to it as, as Datuk consistently before that. Yeah, there's one Chinese plaque there from 1923 that refers to her in Chinese. I, I don't know the Chinese phrase, but the translation is as old fairy of Kusu, uh, as, a, as a kind of grandmother figure. So these Malay names come about later. It's possible they were being used uh, earlier. The Abdul Rahman's interesting because that's also a name that's referenced uh, at a second grave at Habib No. And the name also showed up uh, in another Keramat, Kubur uh, Panjang, which is a, a long grave Keramat that was at Ringwood Road. When it was re reinterred in the, um, uh, 1994, that, that's the name that appeared on the grave when it was reinterred at Pusara Abadi. Why that name shows up, I don't know. It's, not, it's a fairly common Malay name, but, but why that one name is, has such power, I'm not sure. That's very interesting. So Haji Syed Abdul Rahman is apparently buried in three different places at least. It's hard to say if it's the same saint kind of figure that's being replicated because you do see names repeated. Um, there's another Sheikh Ismail who shows up at several shrines throughout Singapore and, and, and in, into Malaysia and Penang, uh, Pulau Basar as well. Uh, as far as the mother uh, figure, Nanek Galib, Galib is actually an, an, a, a male name in Arabic. But it's very, very close to uh, the word gaib, uh, which means to, when a holy person takes themselves from the earth, they occlude themselves from you know, this foul planet and, and take themselves into kind of occlusion. Uh, and that word is gaib. And there is a tradition of gaib among, among walis and holy people. Gaib is, a, is an Arabic word? or I believe or it's an Arabic origin word, but when, in a local context, this, it means to, to, to remove yourself like this. The name Galib, given to the mother, is a, a male name, traditionally. So maybe the, it's a kind of uh, very close relation between those two, yeah? Can you help us understand, you know, how has this, the story of the occupants of the shrine changed over time? Initially, it seems like there was only one male Datuk there. In the earliest records, it's singular. There's not a, a, a reference of plural. Uh, in 1917, we find a plaque that was given, uh, or the, the shrine was built to the female, the Nenek, uh, which means grandmother, um, by Baba Chinese, because she brought a child to, to this man's house. The relationship between this family shifts over time. Sometimes the females are the sister and the mother, sometimes it's the wife and the mother, etc. Uh, so that's a little unstable as well. There's a lot of stories of how they came to be on the island, which range from he was a Malay fisherman who wound up dying there, uh, along with a Chinese fisherman, which explains why there's a Chinese shrine on the island as well. Uh, in other cases, he's said to have been a man who was a hermit and went there to meditate on this rock out in the, out in the sea. Uh, so there's, it's, there's no one kind of background story to, to the character. I, to me, that doesn't diminish the authenticity of the site. It kind of adds to it because it shows the oral traditions that, that have been carried on. The story that's prominent now is really close to the idea of racial harmony where you've got a Chinese fisherman and a Malay fisherman who, who, who were shipwrecked on the island and then starved to death, etc. In some cases, they, they escaped due to sort of supernatural means. But on either way, there's this idea of the sworn brothers, which becomes important. 
uh, of the two, the Chinese and the Malay, kind of being together. Uh, and that chimes well with post-colonial ideas of racial harmony, and that's now on a plaque at Kusu when you get off the boat. It says, you know, that this is the story. Uh, and that's becoming kind of the official version of it. Uh, but if you look in the record, there's many, many other, maybe more um, interesting versions that come out of it. So the, the, the names, you know, uh, Abdul Rahman, Nene Ghalib, and Sharifah Fatima, so these, these start appearing, and then at, at some point, the, the story stops evolving. You know, it's, it yes. sort of solidifies, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And, and this, yeah, that's a good point. It starts solidifying, um, I think, as the island becomes a kind of more of a tourist attraction. As it, it, the internet doesn't help with this um, because once these stories get kind of set, then they become cut and pasted again and again and again, and they become accepted as, as the main story. For this one as well, um, it shows up in various books about the island and things like this. You know, is that a good or bad thing? I don't know. It certainly helps with the appearance of this being the grave of a particular individual and his family. As, as opposed to being a, a, a Datuk shrine. I think given the fact that mostly Chinese visit this shrine, and that's been true for a very long time, it seems to be that this, this kind of Datuk element is, is still the prominent one. Uh, but when you talk about Keramat as, as a Malay phenomenon, then the Malay aspects of this Keramat come to the fore. Uh, and in previous studies of Keramat is treated as, as any other Malay Keramat you would find in Singapore and not as Datu Kong. However, in studies of Datu Kong, it's treated as Datu Kong. For people who, who don't know, what, what is a Datu Kong and you know, what's a Keramat? You know, just, just tell us a little bit. This gets really murky really fast. Um, there's a tradition in Malaya of these Datuk spirits, as I was saying earlier, uh, who are nature spirits, and they take on uh, Malay identities, or they possess, they don't take on, they, they possess, they come with Malay identities. Um, and a karamat may develop, which would be a shrine grave, which then is treated as, uh, as you would the grave of an actual living karamat. There's a tradition of uh, holy men in, in, in a Sufic tradition, uh, of holy men who uh, are also known as karamat, and their graves then become karamat graves. Distinguishing between a Datuk karamat grave, which is a grave shrine, and an actual grave of a, of a wali is almost impossible over time because often they're changed. And the stories about them might, might alter a bit. But the fact that it looks like a grave and it's, there's a name associated with it would lead most people to observe it to think it's a grave. Um, so that's, it's really hard to, to pick those apart in the historical record, unless it's clearly a grave, like Habib, no, we know is a grave. What's a Datuk Kong? So you have a tree or a rock uh, that has a spirit within it, which is this Datuk spirit. Uh, and Datuk just means grandfather. Uh, Kong means grandfather in Hokkien, yeah? So it, it literally makes no sense, it's grandfather, grandfather. Uh, but this, this spirit um, becomes popular within a community usually because it grants some kind of wishes, uh, often to do with prosperity, things like lottery numbers, uh, or the granting of a child, uh, helping with ill health and this kind of thing. Uh, and it, uh, over time, that shrine may develop certain accoutrements which would make it look like a grave. Yeah? And the local Chinese may refer to it as Datuk Keramat. 
whereas the local Malay or the local Hindu population might look at it, the exact same shrine, in, with a slightly different perspective, and it become, takes on different characteristics. Uh, and that happens again and again, in my research at least, from in, in different Karamat that were, used to be in Singapore. These tended to be roadside shrines that were destroyed as development occurred. Uh, Kusu's been kept intact largely because it's not in the way of anything. You're not going to build a car park on top of the island. Uh, and it was decided when the island was redeveloped in the 70s as a kind of a resort destination that they would keep the shrines uh, because it would help with the tourist attraction. But it, it, if, if you want to try to say this is very clearly, you know, Datuk Keramat, this is uh, a Muslim Keramat, you're going to get sticky fast. Keramat Kusu is actually quite old, isn't it? I mean, tell us a little bit. You know, you, you've alluded to some of this, but how far back do we know uh, Kramat Kusus existed? Yeah, there's there's a uh, at least to the 1840s. Wow. Uh, yeah, quite some time. There was an attempt made in the 1870s to um, use it as a burial ground for the quarantine station that was on St. John's Island. And in the 1870s, what we call Lazarus Island uh, was called St. John's. There was a St. John's one and a St. John's two. Uh, that's now shifted, and that's caused some confusion l later, later commentators. But I, the, the idea was that they were going to take um, people who died in the quarantine station of infectious diseases and bury them on, on Kusu. Why Kusu is an odd choice? Uh, there wasn't a lot of land at the time. Uh, it was basically a, a granite dome. Where you would have those burials is unclear, but apparently they began taking place, and the local Chinese community protested this because it was... Um, polluting the, the sacred space. Uh, and a letter was published in the Straits Times. A man uh, wanted to purchase that island to protect it. Uh, and he wrote a letter saying that, uh, you know, we've been going there for the last 30-odd uh, years, which would put it back to the 1840s. And he alludes to both the Datu Keramat and the Tapek Kong Temple as being present. So at least to the 1870s when he wrote the article, and the 1840s if he's to be believed. Wow, okay, so that's, that's pretty old. So tell us, you know, for the people who've never been to Kusu Island, what, 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 what would they see? You know, what, what can they expect when they, when they land on the island? The Kusu you visit today has been radically changed. Uh, in the 1970s, it, it was surrounded by landfill, and it increased by, in, in size by more than two-thirds. Uh, it used to just be this granite dome, a kind of mud flat, and a rocky kind of projection, uh, which is where the Taupe Kong Temple is. Uh, and then the, sh the, the shrine, the Karamat's at the top of the, the dome. Now when you show up, there's, a, there's much more space that's been added and they've, they've tried to turn it into kind of a, a holiday destination or a day trip uh, place with um, little cabanas lo located around uh, artificial beaches. And it functions that way. I've, I've gone there and I see, especially foreign tourists, I think, coming in and, and going as a, as a kind of offshore beach resort day trip. Um, as far as the shrines, they're completely open. You can go in and visit them. Uh, during the ninth month, which is usually around October time in the Gregorian calendar, uh, there is a major festival that happens there, uh, and it's very, very crowded. Um, and it would be, it's probably an interesting time to visit, but it's also, you, you, there's the most crowds. Usually when you go there, it's completely empty. Right. So, uh, and, and when people go to the shrine, do they, do they first stop at the Tuapet Kong Temple and then go up to the shrine? Or is, is there like an order? There is, and traditionally you visit Tuapet Kong first and then go up to the, the shrine on the top of the hill. 
uh, and that completes the kind of circuit. Is it significant that it's on top of a hill? Yes. Yeah, that's important for the ninth festival because uh, traditionally, one, you visited ancestors' graves, uh, and two, you would visit a high place. Uh, this is coming from the mainland, a very old tradition. Uh, and the fact that this, the topography here in Kusu has that, so you could visit the Tao Pei Kong, which is basically at sea level, and then ascend to the Karamat, which is a nature spirit, the Datu Karamat at the top of the dome, before coming back down and kind of completing the cycle. This pattern happens elsewhere in Singapore at Palau Sejahat, which uh, used to exist off of Palau Te Kong, uh, which is now being part of the landfill there. Uh, same situation, it was a granite dome, and there was a Tao Pei Kong temple and a Malay Karamat, which shows up in old maps. Uh, interestingly, it happens at Habib No. There's a very old Tao Pei Kong temple near Habib No, going back at least to the 1820s. And then there's Habib No, which is on top of a hill, right next to it. And that used to be right on the coast before the landfill happened. Even the British were putting in landfill. So, but in the old days, that was right on, on, the, on the sea. Also, all three of these would have been uh, both navigation marks and shipping hazards. Uh, which is another interesting connection because it would show that uh, propitiating these sites uh, may be a way both to mark them in, in a kind of um, oral mapping tradition uh, of, of, of as a sea mark uh, and also to remind people that they're dangerous. You know, ships, ships can crash there. Uh, so all of these traditions kind of begin to overlap. Yeah? Then, um, you know, why do shrines, you know, flourish on Kusu Island and I, it's it's hard to say. I you know the, the tradition of Tao Pei Kong is is it's it becomes difficult to talk about Datu Kong completely separate from Tao Pei Kong. Uh, the actual forms of devotion are very similar. Uh, the kind of offerings that are made are very similar. Uh, there's been studies of Tao Pei Kong that r relate it to uh, the Earth God. Uh, there's some belief that he was based on a real person who was uh, uh, in a triad in uh, Penang. Uh, but there's a clear relation between Tudi Gong, which is a Chinese earth god, and, and Tao Pei Kong, and the prosperity god. And Tao Pei Kong is kind of in between. He's elements of the prosperity god and, and Tudi Gong from the earth god become part of that. Uh, and it's very common to find Datu Kong near Tao Pei Kong, uh, often within the same temple complex or sacred space. And so if you look at those three examples I was just mentioning, and Kusu is probably the best, why would you have earth gods here? And what relation to the sea? And if you think of traveling on the sea, safety is the earth. You know, the sea is the risk, the sea is the hazard, the earth is the safety. Uh, and propitiating the earth god to protect you at sea actually makes a lot of sense. And there was a story that in the old days, uh, Chinese junks in, in this region would have two idols on them. One, is, one was the queen of heaven, and the other one was always a topic Kong. So if you look at something like Kusu, which was a navigation mark as well as, as a shipping hazard, uh, putting a Tao Kong temple there then makes a lot of sense because it becomes a kind of safe harbor. Uh, over time, it develops, uh, again, this idea of being connected to the prosperity god. It, it connects to good luck, prosperity. Good luck while you're traveling at sea. For those who don't travel at sea, it just becomes a, a point of prosperity. Uh, this is then connected to the Datu Kong. It's there as a kind of lo localized nature spirit, whereas Tao Pei Kong is a more generalized nature spirit, yeah? Uh, at least that's my reading of, of the situation. So I, I, I grew up in Singapore, so I, I never knew that Tao Pei Kong was actually like a 
Singapore slash Malaysia phenomenon. He's completely unique. He doesn't exist in mainland China, uh, unlike Mazu or, or the other Im or imported Shenzhou. He, he, he aro arose in the 19th century in, in, uh, Penang? in Penang, yeah, in Penang. And there's been a lot of studies done on that because of the uniqueness of it. Like Dr. Kong is also unique to Malaya. You know, it's, it, it, you, you would need both the Chinese and the Muslim traditions merging to create Datu Kong, uh, whereas Tape Kong is, is this merging of a kind of um, localized spirit that the Tudi Gong and, and then this, this prosperity god. A very famous Tape Kong temple in, in Luoyang, near Luoyang Valley, uh, and there's a Datu Kong uh, shrine grave within that temple next to a Ganesha which gets a lot of attention because of, if, again, with the multicultural issue and the kind of syncretic religion happening. Uh, and they're, they're a good example of that, of that going on, yeah? Is it true to say that, you know, Singapore has more than its fair share of these very syncretic traditions? So you have, for example, near Waterloo Street, you have the, the Hindu temple and the Chinese temple next to each other and, and the Chinese people sort of hop over to the Hindu temple and, and uh, there's an urn for joysticks. And so this, this syncretism, is, is that, is that unique to Singapore and Malaya? No, I, it's not unique, I, I think, to, to Singapore and Malaya, but this particular mix is what makes it unique. Uh, you get the Islam, Taoism, and Hinduism coming in, which have a lot of overlapping, uh, traditional Islam, I, I should stress, uh, the kind of Sufic Islam that first came to this part of the world. There's a lot of overlap between uh, modes of worship uh, as far as shrines, nature shrines, uh, local holy men, the graves of local holy men. You find this in India. You find it with Muslim traditions that come through India. Uh, you find it in Taoism with, with animism being very prominent. And these things being put close together kind of naturally blend. Uh, and it's, it's understandable why that would happen. Uh, and it makes it interesting. I mean, because it, 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 is, it comes from the ground up. Whereas, you know, the, the, the main religions that, that, that kind of create the grounds for that come from on high. Um, you wind up having very structured, hierarchical traditions. You have people who are in positions of power, whether they're, they're imams or, 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 or priests of some kind. Uh, whereas the shrine is a community event. It happens on the ground. There may be a caretaker. There may be multiple caretakers. Um, you have people from all the different religions who may view it slightly differently. But the, the tree, let's say, remains sacred, whether you're a Hindu, a Muslim, or a Taoist. Uh, and so the, eventually people build shrines that start taking on elements of each other. And that's that's fascinating. Yeah? Fascinating. You've been to Kramat Kusu both before and after the fire. When, when you went after the fire, you know, what kind of damage did the fire do? What, what did you see? It was catastrophic, it, it, and there was, there was footage uh, available on, on local TV of the shrine before it was cleaned up, uh, immediately after the fire. And the fire basically destroyed everything that wasn't uh, concrete or brick, uh, stone. And there had been decades of material built up, uh, various caretakers adding to it. It was very jerry-built. Unusual for Singapore, you see this kind of thing in Malaysia and Indonesia, but in Singapore where everything is very structured and regulated and all that, this space really had a kind of uh, improvised, uh, you know, kind of sense to it. And there was, it was... It, it, so you mean like shelters and things? Yeah, canopies and uh, stairs and, and uh, just d different, different elements like this that were built out of wood, it, clearly scrap wood that people had brought out 
it was all painted yellow. It was very lovely. There was also a lot of accoutrement, like uh, cloth coverings, flags. You had a lot of burning incense sticks and candles and things. There's monkeys on the island. And it seems almost inevitable at some point that a candle would get knocked over and, and it would ignite and the thing just went up like a torch. There was reports of explosions. Uh, I believe the caretaker had, well, I know he had a little kind of space behind the shrine where he would hang out and he may have had like a propane hot ring back there to cook noodles or something and uh, those propane tanks probably what explains the explosions. The end result of all that, and you know, they, they, they put the fire out fairly quickly. It was a rainy night, thankfully, that helped. It, it, it destroyed all that material that had built up over the decades that were there. And it left the, the pieces that, were, that had, were made of concrete, like I said, and brick and stone. Yeah? Did anything new, you know, are we able to see new stuff because of the fire? Uh, well, we were able to see old stuff, which had been hidden by, you know, l layers of, of just uh, accretion that had built up over the years. Unfortunately, the 1917 plaques, which were in uh, Jawi and Baba Malay, were very badly damaged. Um, and they've been kind of poorly restored. Fortunately, we have photographs of them, but before they were wrecked, because they're, they're important. Uh, the 1923 plaque in Chinese, I think was of a sturdier material, like a marble, as opposed to like a chunam. Uh, or granite maybe, uh, and that's actually maintained fairly well, and it was, it's been restored fairly well. What the fire really showed you what was, was the shrine that was built 100 years ago, you know, in, in that 1917-1921 restoration. The concrete uh, altar spaces at the heads of the graves, the um, chimney for burning joss paper, which we see in photographs from the 20s and is still there, and that, and that survived it. The general configuration of it is there, and then the, the pillars that were holding up the uh, canopy all survived, and they've all now been uh, rebuilt. They vowed that they would get the thing rebuilt in time for the ninth month festival this year, which I think gave them about seven months. And given that time frame, and given the fact, keep in mind, this is, this is on state land, and it's funded by donations. So given all those constraints, they actually did a great job rebuilding it, essentially as a replica of what was there before. But without all of this extra material that had built up over time, so you could see back into the back of the altars. And, and what you could see on, on the female altars, there were two of them especially, is uh, these stones, these mounds that were there, which are very common in Datuk shrines. Uh, we also came across a, uh, a Batu Nisan, a gravestone, in the back of one of these altars, which I had not seen before because it had been covered with uh, cloth and, and kind of cur curtained away, basically. Uh, and that was now very open. There's a photograph of that in the BiblioAsia article. Uh, and after making correct offerings and propitiation, I, I lifted the, the cloth on that gravestone and found an inscription on it in Jawi, which matches the description that had been on the plaque, saying this is the grave of Datu Nenek. Uh, which, which kind of confirms that this is indeed a shrine grave that was built there. But do we know how old that one was? Well, if it's as old as the plaque, it goes back to 1917. Uh, there's no way of knowing when that stone was emplaced. Uh, and there's the stub of the foot, M Malay graves of two stones, uh, one at the head and one at the, at the waist. Uh, and the stub where it was, had been broken off maybe many, many, many years ago. But you can find the stub of that now as well, which had also been covered previously. So that was a very exciting fine, and it, it wouldn't have happened had it not been for this, this horrible fire. 
uh, and it's still being rebuilt. There was a temporary marquee put up for, for cover during the, from the sun during the ninth month. A lot of the burnt debris, especially the metal debris, which would have to be carted away, uh, has not been. It's just been kind of pushed down to the hillside. Uh, so clearly there's more work that needs to be done to, to complete the rebuild. Uh, but the shrine is open. Well, I was there uh, recently. Uh, a Chinese family came through and made offerings. A Malay couple came through who were sightseers and seemed a little mystified by what was going on. And, and, and I chirped in to try to explain to them this was Datu Kong and all this, and it's not really a Malay grave. It's, and the, <laughs> the husband said, well, that's really disappointing. But not, well, oh, well. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I've never been to Kusu Island during the, the major festival. I think I've been, I, I went to Kusu Island as a kid, and I, but you know, I've never been there during the, the major festival. Like, does it get really crowded? Yeah, I mean, I, I haven't been there during the festival either. I wanted to go this year, and uh, I, a friend of my family traditionally goes, and this year they chose not to. I, w I was going to tag along with them. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's remarkably crowded, and always has been. There's photographs going back to like the, the, the 50s at least, uh, and you can see just these massive amounts of people crammed onto the island. For neophytes among us, tell us, you know, what are the rules uh, about going to... Kusu Island, you know, are they, do you have any recommendations? I mean, if you're going, if, if you're going on a pilgrimage to the to the shrines, then there's people at at the Taipei Temple who can who can guide you through the correct stations. You know, that you need to offer. And there's numbers put posted there. The same is true at the Kanarmat. There's numbers posted. You can you can leave a donation at the donation box and take take the incense and and just offer it in the correct the correct order. Um, as far as any rules, no, I mean, this is, again, what's attractive is kind of folk religion. Uh, and I think you can kind of do it your way. If you're a Taoist, you're going to follow Taoist rules. That's a site. Uh, if you're a Muslim who believes in visiting Karamat, and not all Muslims believe this is correct behavior, but if you are, then you're going to treat it like a Muslim shrine and follow those kind of things. If you're someone like me who comes in as, a, as both a foreigner and not a Muslim nor a Taoist, I light incense, and I think good thoughts, and, and that you know, seems to be okay. And people, when they go to these karamats, they're usually asking for something, aren't they? What, what, what typically do people ask for? Traditionally, this one was known for granting children. So women who, who couldn't have children or families that wanted more children would go to the karamat and, and ask for, for a child. Uh, and I'm, I don't know if that still happens, actually. It'd be an interesting study to find out if, if people still do that. Now it's known for... Uh, 4D numbers. Yeah, so there's a picture of this r yellow rock yeah. with 4D numbers. So what, what, how does that work? Well, I don't know how it works, man, but uh, people say it does. Datu Kong are known for being good places to get luck with 4D numbers. Oh, so you, you, you have a number, you write it down, yes. and then you light incense or whatever, and, you, and, yes. and maybe you'll get lucky. I and need, maybe I need you'll that. get lucky. I've, I've tried and not been lucky. But came close. One, one number I got was one digit off. I was one digit away from being marginally more wealthy. You need faith. That's, I did it wrong, clearly. You see, I should have followed whatever rules I'm supposed to follow. Let me ask you, I mean, you, you've been re researching Kramat for, for, for quite a while now. You've written about the German girl shrine up below Ubin for BiblioAsia, and you, you, you spent your fellowship with the library researching 50 shrines around Singapore. I mean, 
Where did this interest in, in, in shrines and folk religion come, come about? I, all my life I've been interested in kind of weird and esoteric things. Uh, and folk religion is especially attractive, I think, because there's an element of folk religion. This is true all over the world. And where, I'm, where I grew up in Southern California, there's a lot of Central American folk religion, which is a Catholic base that picks up local deities. Not that dissimilar to, to what happens here. And I, you know, the attraction is, is a kind of street sensibility that comes from these things, an almost punk sensibility, that this is... Uh, it's not an alternate to larger religious systems, and it's not, it's not given as a kind of um, opposition, like a kind of Satanism or something, which is a, a, intentionally a, going in the opposite direction. Um, rather, it, it, it picks up a real kind of folk tradition which is resistant to these kind of larger systems, I think. Uh, it gives a space where people can ask for these these things from, from a higher power without necessarily subjecting themselves to the hierarchy that exists within more structured religions. Uh, and so that's very attractive to me. The other thing that's attractive is just, I mean, they're, they're exotic and weird and wonderful, uh, and that's true for the Catholic shrines where I grew up as much as here. It's not a, an Orientalism kind of fascination. It's just really a fascination with this kind of mysticism that exists. You know, you, you, you've written books you're, you've done your fellowship. What are you working on now? My fellowship really was foundational. Uh, it was not meant to be definitive. Uh, and it, even though it was huge, it's over 190,000 words, over 1,000 manuscript pages. Uh, I mean, it's a massive study. It's the biggest study of karma I've ever undertaken, I think, anywhere, as far as I'm aware. Rick, if, if someone's interested in reading this, where can they find it? Uh, it is available as a PDF, both at myacademia.edu site. Uh, there's another um, available version from the Urban Explorers of Singapore who've posted it to their Facebook page. So I think if you, if you try to find it online, it's not that hard to, hard to get to. And it is available freely. And it's supposed to be because, it, again, I, it's, it's foundational. I want feedback and I want people to correct things. Maybe I missed a source. Maybe a date is wrong. Maybe there's other versions of a story that I, which should be included. So it's good that it becomes uh, foundational in, the, in this way. So what I'm doing now is I'm extracting from that to publish in articles like BiblioAsia, my work on Kusu. My um, work on Rodden Moss, I'm trying to get published elsewhere. Uh, eventually looking to getting this, this package as a book. I think there's never been a book-length study of Karamat in Singapore. There's been just unpublished dissertations and things, but never a book. And I think it's, it's worthy to put it out as more Karamat are disappearing. And you're, you're a writer. You've, you, you've written about uh, Alfred Raquez. Uh, so, and obviously, you, you, you're a researcher as well. But you also write fiction. I do. Uh, there were three, there's a trilogy of, of uh, noir set in the 1890s in, in Malaya, and each book has a lot of local mysticism in there. So there's, there's I, I try to bring in folk religion into my fiction as well. Uh, those are available from Monsoon Books. Uh, the last one was published, I think, in 2017. How, how would we find them? Uh, you can get them on, on uh, any online bookstore, the big ones, Amazon, etc. cetera. Uh, for a while, they were for sale at Kinokuniya in paperback. What, what, what were your titles? 
uh, they were, it was Singapore red, Singapore yellow, Singapore black. And it was, I, I called it the Malayan trilogy. I might be the only person who called it that, but I, I, it sounded good to me. Uh, and the publisher is Monsoon Books, so you can get it on the Monsoon Books website as well. Thank you, William. Um, we've now come to my favorite part of the podcast where I ask very stupid questions. <laughs> and I don't want to give you any time to, uh, to think about the answer. So very quickly, which historical figure would you like to have dinner with? Farquhar, because we could make fun of raffles all night. What do you think is the most underrated or intriguing period in Singapore's history? For me, the 1890s, like the, the very end of the 19th century, um, is a very interesting period because it's moving into a kind of modernity as far as technology. And a lot of what we consider kind of the modern world, as far as telecoms, electricity, automobiles, start showing up in the 1890s. And you can really see a transition from a kind of frontier uh, experience here to the kind of modern cosmopolitan world that we associate with it. What book's on your nightstand right now? Right now, uh, I'm reading the third book in William Burroughs' Cities of the Red Knight trilogy. It's called The Western Lands. It's a novel. Wow. Okay. I'm going to say a word to you. You're going to have to respond very quickly. Neuromancer. When I was uh, in college, because of my name, I had a professor who studied postmodern science fiction and... Uh, I liked him. He was, a, he was a good professor, but he was just merciless with me in class because of my name. So it, but I, I like it. I, I like William Gibson's novels. I, and I really, I mean, he's fantastic. Um, history is? Old. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Biblioasia is? Underrated. Uh, it's gotten better over the years. You know, and, and I, I think as it's moving into this kind of digital era, it's, it's going to improve. It fills a very important niche in Singapore, which is looking at history uh, without coming from a kind of exclusive heritage position. Uh, it gives a lot of room for exploration of these historical topics without necessarily shoehorning them into this kind of master narrative, which is a kind of superficial narrative which is put forward a lot. And I, I, it's impressive that BiblioAsia is allowed to function in this way. And that's exactly what I've been trying to do. I mean, I haven't been able to say it, but that's exactly, I haven't been like bashing about blindly and just, I had a plan and you have just stated out that plan. Let thank the you foreigner take the bullet, my friend. <laughs> okay. All right. William, thank you very much for joining us on BiblioAsia Plus. You can read William's article in Kramat Kusu and German Girl Shrine, uh, and check out his great photos on the BiblioAsia website at biblioasia.nlb.gov.sg. And if you want to read more about what William's been up to, you can go to his website, which is at williamlgibson.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, subscribe to the podcast in the BiblioAsia newsletter. Thank you for joining me on BiblioAsia Plus.